0: Linnean the Linnaean the Society, the Linnean Society of of London London, London. The Linnean Society of London My name's Lucy Cook and I am the author of Bitch a revolutionary guide to sex evolution and the female animal and this is a book that examines how female animals were marginalized and misunderstood by the scientific patriarchy, starting with Charles Darwin and the revolution that's happened in the last few decades uh, that is redefining the female of the species and the very forces that shape evolution.
1: In your personal life and work, did you find there was a very specific view on gendered behavior? Um, And when writing this book, did you want to change that?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, there's just a horrendous double standard out there, isn't there? And, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm amazed by how the sort of the popular image of of the female is is still wrapped up in Victorian thinking. It's still this idea that that females, you know, or feminine qualities are are you know to be motherly and nurturing, um, but competitiveness, aggressiveness, sexual promiscuity, none of those are considered seemly for for a, for a female um, of whatever species, humans included. Um, so yeah, I, I felt um, you know, it was really important to write this book because you know we we've now made such sort of you know leaps in our understanding of of what is feminine in the in the natural world. And I think it's really important that 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 women and men understand this.
1: Yeah, when I read the book, The Matriarchal Societies that you um, have in it, and one thing I was really shocked about was how brutal and violent some of them are, specifically the lemurs um, and meerkats and naked mole rats surprised me as well. So what do you think it says about our enduring preconceptions of femininity in our society that we still find it really shocking that females could behave so brutally and violently?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm as mystified as you. You know, I mean, I suppose that's a question for a for a social scientist, isn't it? Really, why we believe we're so wedded to these ideas as as humans that that females are are meant to behave in a certain way and males are, are meant to behave, you know, in 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 another way. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really you know know why why it is that that these you know canards persist but they do and um you know i mean i i, I think you know t- particularly when it comes down to sort of this this idea that females are not meant to be competitive or aggressive i mean it's positively laughable when you when you know about meerkat or mole rat society and them I mean, they're incredibly brutal um creatures and and you know arguably much more aggressive and violent than 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 males i mean if you take um you know warring you know, elephant seals, for example, they're a classic kind of you know terrifying. You know, I'm sure some males die in the process, but but you know, when it comes down to you know female mole naked mole rats fighting over who gets to be the next queen, you know, they will die. That the, the losers will die in the process. You know, and there's everything to fight for in that moment because it's the only chance they'll get to reproduce. So, you know, I I think that the 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 examples that I found. Of of competitive females in in particularly in the cooperative breeders like like meerkats and and naked mole rats, I mean they're far more violent and aggressive than 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 males are. The most interesting ones is the
1: fact that they had the highest murder rate um, of meerkats, and um, I think you in the book you even mentioned it's higher than human beings.
0: Yeah, I mean this is just I, I mean this was a sort of a gift of a of a, of a study that I stumbled across because. Um, Yeah, it was. It was about. It was within the last decade. Somebody did a uh, an analysis of one thousand mammals, looking at which species was most likely to be killed by a member of its own species. And of those one thousand mammals, humans were included on the list, which everybody would assume would come out number one. You know, the most homicidal species would be humans. But no, we're not. It's actually the meerkat that that is the most homicidal species on the planet. In fact, one in five meerkats are likely to be killed by a member of their own species, most likely their own mother um, or sister. (laughs) Because <laughs> it's the females that are that are that are that are, that are the that are the most murderous because you know they are wanting to monopolize all the resources that the dominant female wants to monopolize all the resources and, and co-opt all the other members of the group into helping her breeding efforts. Um and if any of the other females in her group, which she's related to, will be her daughters and sisters, um, you know, get, get knocked up by a roving male, for example, then she will kill their babies, um, which are likely to be her her own grandchildren or or you know off grand offspring or, or 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 cousins at least and um and um you know then then the, the females that 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 have given birth are 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 evicted from the the den uh, and of course in in the kalahari eviction is tantamount to murder um but they are able to return to the den if they um wet nurse their murderers um pups instead i mean you know that level of of dark brutality i mean there's nothing you know there's nothing elephant seals have got nothing on that you know i mean it's just it's 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 astonishingly violent and 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 um and competitive
1: you talk a lot about how media itself it's not just these antiquated Victorian views that we're battling against um uh like Madagascar's um interpretation of a king Lima um or what would happen to Marlin um in Finding Nemo yeah it's a lot about the media's interpretation of this as well so um and I think you mentioned Meerkat Manor
0: yeah I mean the media is very much to blame and I mean I I I'm very aware of that because I you know I've worked in uh, natural history documentary filmmaking for years you know and I'm very aware of what gets commissioned and what doesn't get commissioned and the commissioning editors they they don't want to tell these stories they want to perpetuate these stereotypes I mean I find it absolutely maddening and and now when I watch television I I end up just screaming at the TV I mean they had the mating game on television recently on on the BBC and I just was like yelling at the television as you know they just told the same old story you know these sort of dominant males battling for possession of the females who may or may not be coerced you know and there was no hint that females had a sexual strategy of their own and that might involve mating with multiple males you know i mean all of this is completely ignored it's like nobody wants to tell this story they want to remain you know female and so the media is very much to blame and yeah i mean the the example with um uh you know um madagascar the movie is just positively ridiculous isn't it because you know in in the in the movie madagascar uh, is 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 ruled by a fast talking male king julian but you know you go who's the king of the lemurs you know you go to madagascar king julian's nowhere to be found you know he's he's down the bottom of the tree getting beaten by queen julia you know because they're a female dominant society 90 percent of the 111 species of lemur are female dominant yet the producers didn't, if, if they knew about that, didn't see fit to tell that story because it's more appropriate to tell our children that males are in charge. Throughout the whole book, there was a
1: lot of challenging of um, gender stereotypes over lots of animals. Um, Do you think there's anything that we as a species, the human species, can learn from how we view gender stereotypes from, um, you talk about the very dominant uh, female spotted hyena or... um, the fluidity, like the gonadal fluidity of the European
0: mole. My book is about bias, you know, essentially, and how bias how 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 bias has shaped our view of the animal kingdom. And that is, I went in search of sexist bias, which I was, you know, aware of. Um, and then what I actually found on top of that was heteronormative bias, which was actually the bias as a, as a straight woman, you know, that I suffer from. And I realized that, and it was really shocking to me, actually, to realize that, you know, I like, think of myself as quite liberal, but yes, my I view the animal kingdom through a certain you know prism as well you know and it it's, it's maybe not as restrictive as as Darwin's Victorian pinhole camera was but but it's still restrictive and so I think you know the fact that 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 Darwin was was biased and he's a genius a brilliant scientist should be a, a red flag to us all that you know we've all got to check our biases you know so and you know I I, I was obviously taught you know, that, 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 that sex is a binary. Um, And, and what I discovered, and and which really shocked me, uh, and, and I really struggled with as I was writing the book was just the sort of the realization that, that, you know, yes, there are two gametes, there's a, you know, there's a sperm and an egg. So in that sense, sex is binary if you define sex by 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 whether there are there are eggs or sperm but the manifestation of sex is anything but binary I mean you know the book is full of creatures that that um you know either have gonads that you know you 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 can't you you can't say they're either male or female so you you can't you know they they they, they, they sort of sit in somewhere in between and and that's for a variety of reasons I mean you know there are common frogs in there rana temporaria that we all have in our garden you know i had no idea i was obsessed with them as a child and many of these um f- f- frogs it turns out you know they have genetic sex determination but they also have environmental sex determination which can override the genetic sex determination so you end up with xx uh, males and and xy females and and their gonads are in completely impossible to to classify as male or female, you know. So this this you know that's just one of of many examples. You have examples of creatures that change sex and and all sorts of things. And so, and you know, and 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 it just became very obvious to me that it's a very very complex thing. And I think you know our culture is binary and and sort of requires sex to be a binary thing. But what I discovered is that is that you know as I said that, that the manifestation of it is is incredibly complex. You know, by seeing the variety of the female experience in the animal kingdom, that can help us discuss it as humans. Because, you know, with animals, it's not as loaded with culture as 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 it is for humans. And these are all conversations that we're really struggling with, whether it's you know sexist or heteronormative bias, whatever it be. You know, we are we are struggling with these conversations, and I think by understanding. How diverse females are in the animal kingdom, and understanding that the role of diversity—you know—that that all variation is normal, because you know, if you didn't have variation, you'd cease to evolve, and we don't want to stop evolving. So, so I I, I would hope that that it, it you know, one has to be very careful. Not to fall in the trap of certain, you know, evolutionary psychologists who say, "Oh, because lobsters do that, therefore humans do that." You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I, I think it's about understanding the scope and variety that's out there and the complexity of sex, and then, and then, and then, and, and then realizing the, the role of that complexity and and variety in, in humans, and that sort of these deterministic labels are are just redundant, you know.
1: And we can't we can't do the interview without of course discussing the female clitoris and with again with the female spotted hyena that to all you know appearances, it's you know, it's long, it's hard, and it, it would appear to be like a penis. And a lot of animals do have genitalia that would normally be assumed to be male.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, if, you know, if you're trying to sort of classify a female, you know, but, you know, there's there's sort of like the sort of standard set of ways, which I discuss in the book of how you, you know, you might um, define a female. So whether it's by her genitals, well, that's not going to work because, you know, the spotted hyena, as you say, has a clitoris that's exactly the same as the male. Well, I mean, visually, it's very similar um, to the male penis and, and she even has a sort of a false scrotum. Um, and in fact, there was one paper that was written said the only way you could distinguish a male or, or a female um, hyena was by palpation of the scrotum which strikes me as something of a last resort given the animal is known for its ferocious bone crunching bite i might just take a guess do you know what i mean i've got a 50 50 chance of getting it right do you know what i mean it's like not already a story you want to do but but you know so that's the standard way that you might so you can't really tell in that way similarly that the the dominant lemurs they 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 also have a peniform clitoris um actually i find that terminology sort of really grating as well that, that you know because given the fact that the original sex was female um then surely uh the male has an enlarged clitoris not the female has a pseudo penis but anyway um uh but um uh yeah and then and then of course gonads that's another standard um Way of 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 saying, and I've already mentioned the, the the frogs, but the um the 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 European mole, as you mentioned, is is a fantastic example of that. I mean, it's an I, that story blew my mind. You know, because we think of mammals as you know the gonads. You know, we're aware of of species and fish. You know, there are five hundred species of fish that are able to change sex within their lifestyle, but you sort of think like in their lifetime, but. You know, you think of 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 the gonads of mammals as being fairly fixed affairs. You know, they're either you know they're either ovaries or they're testes, um, and they don't change. Well, the European mole blows that out of the water because it turns out the female mole has gonads that are described as ovo-testes, and during the breeding season um she she makes eggs um and uh, but there is a huge amount of testicular tissue which outside of the breeding st- season swells so it's actually greater than there is ovarian tissue um so that and and that and that then produces a lot of testosterone which makes her incredibly um aggressive and and, and a ferocious digger so and and now we you know there's been a sort of you know decoding of the of the mole genome and now we understand how that's possible and it's actually just something like the um, the, the the proteins that the, the regulate the genes. I think it's just two two of those that, that 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 allow this this sort of gonadal flexibility. And and actually, go when you go into the the genetics of it, that's where it all these these stereotypes and it it all becomes much more obvious why you know putting deterministic labels on males and females is is ridiculous because. This is the thing that really, really, really blew my mind. Was when I spoke to Dr. Jenny Graves, who's been studying sexual differentiation and determination for like forty odd years. She's decoded the sex genomes of sex genes of everything from platypus, which have five Xs and five Ys, um, to um, to nematode worms. I mean, she's done it all. She's thought about these things very hard for a long time. And when I asked her to tell me about you know the, the pathways to becoming male or female, she sent me this um, diagram of this extraordinary machine with all these kind of cogs and wheels and little blue balls pinging between it all that would get squashed and then spat out. And she's like, that's the pathway, right? It's anything but linear and distinct. Like we always thought the pathway to becoming male or female were, 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 were two linear and distinct pathways. But actually, what it turns out is that they are they're not that at all that the the pathway to becoming male and the pathway to becoming female are utterly enmeshed and one suppresses the other. So they're antagonistic. And more than that, the genes that make an ovary or make a testes, other than the trigger um, for for that, which is, you know, in humans, the presence or absence of the sry but other than that gene the genes that actually go on to make an ovary or testy they're the same 60 genes I, i mean i had to ring her three times to ask her that question because i just i just couldn't believe it you know that what you're telling me that it's a set of androgynous genes that are responsible for making an ovary or testy and they're involved in this you know antagonistic you know these two antagonistic pathways and when you understand that it all becomes much more obvious why you have creatures like the mole why 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 sex is so plastic and and why labels of of these sort of deterministic differences about males and females are completely obsolete
1: when i was reading the book it shattered a lot of um different preconceptions I had about the female of the species. Um, I think one of my personal highlights was reading about the cannibalistic female spiders, with my favourite being um the UK's very own rat spider. Um, did you have like obviously there's so many fantastic examples? And if it's possible, did you just have one that maybe really stands out?
0: So, so when you see a spider in a web, that's probably a female. The males are just these sort of often just kind of like wandering sacks of sperm that don't live for very long. They they don't have fangs. They don't have venom. You know, and um, what they well, they they just try, their only purpose is to have sex and try not to get eaten in the process. I, I couldn't resist 50 ways to eat your lover as a chapter title you know what was fascinating is is that some species the redback spider where the the males actually do this suicidal somersault into the fangs of the female you know this was a sort of seemed like an incredibly counterintuitive thing like why would the male actually encourage his own demise if he manages to to fertilize the the females eggs in you know before he he dies and they can be incredibly quick about that um then you know he's obviously nurturing those you know he's he's providing energy for 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 those for those eggs and so that's actually sort of rather than a death wish or or you know an inexplicable death it's actually an act of extreme parental care on on his behalf and and actually um the it, there was a study done that found that that there's something uniquely nutritious about eating a member of your own species
1: but it was really interesting to find that you know uh, i think it was the olive baboon you talk about who held the offspring upside upside down and ended up actually causing life changing injuries to it
0: yeah this this was chapter was very important for me, the chapter on motherhood because i I am one of those women who's chosen not to have children i I just have never felt maternal and i and I always felt like a bit of a freak as a result of that i mean i'm I, and and so you know, I was really curious to find out about. The maternal instinct, and you know, did it? You know, does does this really exist? And 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 you know, it, there is an in, a maternal instinct, but it needs to be triggered. So it's not something that that women are, you know, females are born with. It it needs to be triggered. And actually, Catherine Dulac has has found that the, the actual the the, the 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 neuronal architecture behind that 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 switch for parenting. And it exists in males and females. So, I mean, that's amazing, right? So first of all, that's, you know, that, that males are able to be just as nurturing as females, which I think is a really important message um, uh, for people. And she's convinced that that neuronal architecture will be the same in in humans as it is in, in mice. It's been found in mice and frogs. And then but the other thing, of course, is that, you know, Motherhood is, is 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 there's there's a lot to learn, you know, and I mean I've got plenty of female friends who have really struggled with with motherhood and and feel, you know, society really shames women for feeling like they they they're not good mothers, you know, and um. You know, it's really hard. There's a lot to learn. And it's not just if you're a human, there's a lot to learn. It's the same if you're a baboon. So as you said, yeah, I mean, Jean Altman did this incredible, you know, work, 40 year study on olive ba- baboons, which has been uh, huge revelations in in what being a mother involves. And, and she found that olive baboons, that, that the females have, have got to learn how to suckle saying it's not easy they've got to learn how to carry an infant and keep up with the troop you get no downtime you give birth and then the troops on the move you know you've got to keep up and and that's really difficult you know um and she she called them dual career mothers as she recognized that you know they they've got to female baboons have got to sort of earn a living plus be a mother at the same time you know and that's hard and and and, 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 it requires learning and, 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 and the firstborn is 60% more likely to die than subsequent babies, um, uh, which is a statistic that she found, um, you know, which I think is, it's really important that these, that information is out there because, you know, that, that's, you know, there's, there's there's no need for those olive baboons to be shamed. They're just on a steep learning curve. And as tragic as it is that their babies may not, their firstborns um, may not make it because they, they they haven't learnt the ropes yet. I, I think it's really important to recognise these things. And, and I think that this idea that, that women are imbued with a, a, a maternal instinct from the moment they're born is incredibly damaging.
1: It's one that still perpetuates, you know, we're Mm -hmm. we're talking a lot like this is stemmed from Victorians and sometimes people forget that was 200 years ago.
0: Yeah, Uh, I was a bit worried at the time I'd written quite a dark chapter about mothering. But I actually I've had a lot of a lot of women who who are mothers themselves have been really grateful for the honesty of it, actually, and have found it just a relief to know that that, you know, the struggle is real, whether you're human or (laughs) baboon.
1: Throughout the book, I really sense this um your your relationship with Darwin, for lack of a better word, of both hero um but flawed human being as well in his thinking, which I think is going into the 21st century is how we're going to look at a lot of the explorers, naturalists and scientists that we we looked at. If you could sit down right now for five minutes with Darwin and talk to him, what would you ask and why?
0: Oh, that's a great question, and how I would love to do that. I'd love to know if he really believed man was superior to woman. I mean, that's what he wrote in The Descent of Man, clear as day. Ultimately, man has become superior to woman as a result of sexual selection. And did he really, really believe that? Ah. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I felt aggr- I felt really conflicted about. You know, I studied evolutionary biology. You know, Darwin's my Jesus. You know, I mean, I, I it, it, it discovering that his science was flawed was very difficult for me because you know he is such an incredibly meticulous scientist. Um. And I felt guilty about, you know, criticizing him. I felt, well, first of all, you know, because, you know, I mean, incredible as it seems, in this day and age, we're still having to defend evolution itself. So being critical of it, you know, first of all, I was like, oh, you know, that's difficult. You know, do I want to be critical of of Darwin? Don't want to give, don't want to give the creationists any rope to hang him with any further, you know, but I think. You, you know, there's no point pretending that everything's okay in the house, and and let's all just move on, and not and not look at the the racist and sexist comments that are uh, laced through the descent of man. Um, and and actually, I think you know it's really important to recognise that that you know the science is vulnerable to bias. You know, and 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 goodness knows, I mean, you can't get a better scientist than Darwin, and and like I say, if if he's you know, vulnerable to 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 being you know influenced by cultural bias. Then, as I say, it's a red flag for all of us. You know, but you do get these these sort of tantalising hints when you read his more obscure work, like his work on barnacles, where you know he and and in his private letters, like there was one brilliant um, sort of insight where he writes to, I think it's Hooker, he's writing to in, about barnacles, and um, and he's talking about how he's found these. Um, You know, these big hermaphrodite females and then these teeny tiny little complemental males. And and then he's found sort of, you know, in between type uh, um, that are neither they're sort of in between these these big female hermaphrodites. The female stroke hermaphrodites and and these complemental males. and and he, he writes to hook, he says, you know you you will think my my theory, um you know, to the devil, you know, for 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 so sacrilegious to not only be suggesting that 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 evolution is possible, but evolution between sexual um you know, sex between male and female or hermaphrodite between is is possible. but but so he he knew that there was complexity there because you even
1: mentioned that he was um. I won't say bullied, but I'll say heavily pressured to even that he's always coined with um, survival of the fittest to sum up evolution. But in fact, um, as you mentioned in the book, that wasn't his his wording. He was pressured. No, that to- was Herbert yeah. Spencer.
0: Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't him. He didn't say that. And 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 that phrase has caused so much damage i mean it's just like because people think that i mean it's a brilliant piece of branding isn't it survival of the fittest everybody knows it. oh evolution survival of the fittest you know no we never said that <laughs> and people don't understand what fittest means that's the problem with it is that you know as zoologists we understand fitness means you know it is 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 about reproductive fitness and, and about offering of survival offspring to to reproduce but most people see that as fittest, as in biggest and toughest and and most competitive. And so, you know, culturally, we're obsessed with this idea of like competition and alphas and 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 it's and and a lot of it is around this misunderstanding of something that Darwin didn't even say. I and mean, actually, that's what my next book's going to be about. Is is actually going to tease that out more.
1: It also reminds me of my favorite fact in your book about barnacles was the length of their penis they have, is it, is that true? They have the, the largest penis in um, comparison to their body size?
0: I, I believe so. I don't think anybody's found a bigger penis since Darwin found that one himself, you know, and um, which he described as coiled like a great worm. Um and, um, you know, he was sort of giddy in his descriptions of it. It's really fabulous in his in his barnacle monocles that he that he wrote. Um and yeah, it's eight or nine times the length of the 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 body of the barnacle. so it's um it's the longest relative to body length in the animal kingdom. And obviously, you know, it, it sex finding a sexual partner is quite difficult if you're you know cemented to a rock via your head. Um, so the barnacles' solution is to be to have um, you know sexes that are that are hermaphrodites, but also the males um, have these extraordinary penises which can go roving looking for a sexual partner um, even when they're glued to a rock. Um, it's a sort of as I say in the book like a kind of X-rated Mr. Tickle. <laughs> slightly frivolous moment, but I couldn't resist it
1: <laughs> growing up on those books I have any a fantastic imagery just from that one there uh, that one sentence yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, You also talk about how we've evolved in our thinking, especially as more and more um, women uh, and non-binary, trans and other members of the LGBTQIA community have started looking at these species and studying them with a new lens. Um, But do you think that's as done or is there a lot more headway that we still need to make in these scientific discoveries and our own thinking about them as well?
0: Uh, no, I, I think we're sort of in the middle of a paradigm shift, actually. And I think there's a long way still to go. I mean, um, I know that um, the, the numbers of LGBTQ in, in, within STEM are still very low and, 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 and a lot of them leave. Um, so, you know, it, it's still, you know, but, but diversity is the key to, to finding the truth. I mean, you need diverse um, you know, questions coming from diverse places you know in mean, science is all about asking questions and it, it took pioneering women like Sarah Blaffer and Patricia Goati to, to start questioning Darwinian stereotypes from a female perspective to overturn these old sort of sexist stereotypes which you know is, is an ongoing I mean that's been going on for 40 years and it's still not over I mean you know there's still you know huge amounts of debate around Bateman's paradigm and and um And uh, and 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 females, and and so the sort of you know as as for heteronormative bias, you know, I think we're we're sort of really just beginning to to start with that um, journey. And you know, I I spoke to this you know brilliant scientist Lauren O'Connell who's at Stanford who who actually found the switch for parenting in in frogs, and she said to me she thinks that this, you know, by having people of you know, different. Um, you know, a, a, a range of you know sexualities and, and genders coming into the science and asking questions from their perspective is going to be the next revolution. You know, so she she feels very much that that is something that we're 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 just sort of on the cusp of, which is really exciting. You know, for us to sort of understand the kind of com- that that this isn't that sex is incredibly complex and also incredibly plastic, I think is, you know, it it is, it's, 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 these are exciting times. There's a lot to play for. And, and, and obviously, you know, diversity is, is key in all that. And actually not just in, in sex, um, Uh, you know sexuality and gender also in terms of where people are from and the languages that people speak i mean i think that you know just the fact that english is the predominant language in science you know restricts it and and, you know culturally you know science is you know zoology is is dominated by not just sort of you know white men but white men from the western world you know from these sort of post-industrial Um, cultures and you know if you go to other cultures you know there's completely different views of 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 sex and sexuality so so I think I think having you know a diverse all you know all diversity we need diversity of 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 cultures and 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 geographical diversity and and even language is 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 going to help science
1: and monogamy as well was something that was another really interesting one it's again brings us back to this victorian housewife of women stay home have one husband and that's that's their lot and i think you touch on the end of that chapter about how um human beings are socially monogamous um and i suppose to me i wasn't quite i've never heard the idea of socially monogamous does this mean that i suppose biologically you think we were monogamous or it's more of a cultural influence
0: um with certainly with songbirds you know you know songbirds have been thought of as sort of you know the paragons of monogamy for so long and they you know they you know they you, because we see them we see them you know we watch them from our houses and they look like they're so like us you know the male tracks the female and then they build a nest together and they raise the chicks together but it turns out that that they may well be socially monogamous, but sexually it's another story. They are not sexually monogamous. And and um, and uh, Patricia Goati was the first to do DNA um, testing on a clutch of eggs and found that it, a clutch of eggs has multiple fathers. Of course, when she presented this information um, in the 1980s at a conference, um, an orthological conference, uh, a very well-known uh, male ornitholo- ornithologist told her that the only way that that was possible was if the females were being raped. There was no way that the females were were actively seeking matings um, um, outside of the partnership, um, and it took Bridget Stutchbury and other. Um, other scientists to put radio trackers on the back of hooded warblers and various different songbirds to establish that females were in fact leaving the territory and actively soliciting sex with males um, in order to 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 address that. The, the, the females weren't being coerced. They were actually, you know, their own sexual agents. They have their own sexual strategy, and that involves mating with multiple males. And of course. As though it may seem, you know, unlikely to to male ornithologists that females are doing this, but to Patricia Goarty, she said it's a no brainer. I mean, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, you mate with multiple males; you greater the genetic diversity is. Therefore, you know, the you know better chance of hitting the genetic jackpot. So, you know, it, it's it, it, that's why it is just sort of important to to have to have different questions from different people from you know asking these questions but uh, it just shows the layers of prejudice you know that that nobody wants to accept these you know these stereotypes are so woven into our cultural thinking
1: yeah. especially i think for a lot of birds have long been romanticized as poster children for the ultimate um i think you mentioned in the book as well that they they even call it a divorce rate
0: Yes, they Same. do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. a divorce that. rate. Yeah. I mean, penguins are a classic. that everybody always thinks of penguins as like, you know, that march of the penguins really did a number on on penguins, you know. Everybody thinks and But but divorce rate, most most penguins are not monogamous. And actually, divorce rates get um they get uh I think they get they, they get they get higher the, the, the further you get away from the um the uh the pole. Um so yeah, I mean there's I think I think it's something like only 7% of, of, of birds are are considered sexually monogamous. And I bet that number is going down all the time. Even swans are unfaithful.
1: Not swans. You can't go for
0: swans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the albatross story is brilliant for that because um the albatross obviously a great symbol of heterosexual monogamy, aren't they? I mean, you know, they you know, they are one of the birds that 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 can pair for life. I mean, some of them um do, but not always, you know, and 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 that particular colony that I visited in Hawaii, a third of the of the of the couples that that are there are actually female-female couples because there's a there's a shortage of males, and so the females are mating with um other with with male with males that are already in in partnerships and then because it's impossible to raise a chick by yourself you can't you can't do it as a a single mum it's not possible with an albatross when you've got a chick that takes six months to fledge um you need to partner so they partner with another female and then both females will lay an egg only one of those eggs will, will survive um but it means that the females are still able to to reproduce. Um, Obviously, at at half the rate of a a heterosexual couple, because um, only one of those eggs will survive. So each season only, they only have a 50-50 chance of their egg making it um, to to fledge, but um, as opposed to a 100% chance if they were to mate with a male. But it's better than not mating at all. So I met this one bird... The scientists who've been studying it said, you know, they're just like us, albatross, you know, you get some that will will, will, will meet a, a male and, and, and stay with them for life. Some of them play the field and some of them will be happy in a same sex relationship. And and she introduced me to this one bird who had been with her partner, a female, um, for 17 years and they were amongst the most successful couples on the colony they'd had something like seven um chicks and 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 three grand chicks you know um and they she said their relationship just works and it includes all the same lovey-dovey preening and when they've been off on by themselves for six months on the wing when they meet they 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 coo and preen and moo and do all the stuff that, that that creates all that lovely bird oxytocin that makes their bond so strong and she said relationship just works they communicate well they're able to raise chicks well together and so and i found that you know that flexibility I mean, it's just incredibly heartening you know course, but, and and fascinating I and mean, of course of course it's going to be flexible why wouldn't it be you know but it's just that we see these things as 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 in in certain boxes you know but but actually it, it's a flexible system yeah, i
1: suppose yeah it's it's incredibly even when you say Exactly. As you say, it's a monogamous relationship, but it's still outside the heteronormative monogamous relationship. So it's still people like, oh, no. And it, 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 it all goes straight back in, isn't it? They are monogamous. It's what you always wanted.
0: And especially that heteronormative block is 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 most key with with species like albatross where males and females are identical, you know. And, and you, you know who you, you don't know. I mean, in actual fact, with amongst seabirds, there's a lot of um, same-sex partnering. I, I I believe somebody said to me that on a recent Attenborough, they had uh, two male albatross where the males had actually got together. So you know, and it's 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 very flexible. Just extraordinary privilege of of writing this, as I realised it was like, you know, getting to do a PhD and 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 choosing all my men, all these amazing mentors, and getting to to sort of pick their brains and 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 talk to them and and spend time with them was just just wonderful.
1: Wow!
0: And it sounds like it's about time to do it all over again. Yes. Yeah. I'm literally just about to start. Um is going to be called Cock and Bull, The Great Masculinity Myth and about how we've misunderstood the role of competition and and um, overplayed it over the years. Okay, we are watching this space, yeah. Cock and Bull. <laughs> People can follow me on social media. I'm on i'm on instagram lucky cook l-u-c-k-y-c-o-o-k-e um and twitter who knows how long all of any of us will be on twitter but um ms lucy cook ms lucy cook um so yeah if you want to follow my adventures of cock and bull you can follow me there and um bye bitch
1: (laughs) Definitely recommend it for any sloth fans as well, the Instagram account. Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah, so I've got a sideline in sloth. So if you like if you like sloth then you'll be rewarded. <laughs> Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. London. Of London.